Hi, I'm Cynthia Swan, and welcome to Healthy Options. Healthy Options is a show on integrative medicine offerings, and today's show is an integrative approach to attention deficit disorder with Amy Stein. And let me tell you a little bit about our guest. Amy Stein earned a master's in social work from Rutgers University and has worked with adolescents for 10 years teaching in alternative schools on nature preserves and farms. As a volunteer youth leader for five years, she assisted with program development for middle and high school students and helped refurbish houses with youth on mission trips to Maine and Mexico. During grad school, she interned as an addictions therapist in an inner-city hospital and counseled developmentally disabled adolescents in an alternative school where she implemented environmental and art programs as alternative therapeutic approaches. Now, these experiences evolved into a thesis and eventually into her book, which I've read, published by Haworth Press in 2003, called Fragments, Coping with Attention Deficit Disorder. Her book offers new perspectives and direction and introduces people with ADD and ADHD to an ecologically-based lifestyle that encompasses hands-on interactive learning through organic farming, environmental education, art, community service, music, yoga, and meditation in lieu of traditional psychotherapy and medication. During several years teaching at-risk adolescents in alternative schools, she developed and taught curriculum that integrated agriculture, art, and ecology. The environmental education program included forest and stream ecology, camping trips, community gardening, and maple sugaring. Her art curriculum included abstract and impressionistic painting and environmental sculpture. She's also worked in community gardens, taught on a nature preserve, and volunteered for environmental organizations. Recently, she worked as a therapist in a wilderness therapy program in northern Maine and developed groups for at-risk female adolescents based on the disciplines of ecology, Native American culture, psychology, and art to address anger management. As an artist, she has exhibited and sold oil paintings for eight years and has studied oil painting through the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Art, the Samuel Flesher Art Memorial School, and Woodstock School of Art in New York. Her second book, The Rising Sun, Reflections on Nature and Community, is a series of reflections on the psychological and social benefits of nature and community, including organic farming, environmental education, wilderness experiences, and community service. She currently resides in New Jersey, and Amy enjoys kayaking, yoga, hiking, Jambi drumming? Amy, help me with that. Jimbe drumming. Jimbe, okay. Jimbe, you'll have to tell me more about that. <laughs> Organic gardening, snowshoeing, and cross-country skiing. And I am so pleased to have you on the program. Welcome, Amy. Thank you so very much. Let's um, just, we'll give this information again, but your book can be, um, and you can be contacted through, is it Hayworth? Did I say Hayworth. Haywortherepress.com. And that's H-A-W-O-R-T-H. Press.com. So, Amy, let's start right w- to the meat of this. What is attention deficit order? What is ADHD? Attention deficit disorder um, and also attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, is, as it is now referred to, was first documented back in 1902, and it is characterized by developmentally inappropriate levels of inattention, impulsivity, and hyperactivity. Um, As I said, it's now commonly referred to as ADHD, and it is divided into three subtypes. The first subtype is ADHD, predominantly inattentive type. Um, That includes symptoms of inattentiveness, organizational problems, someone who's easily distracted. And the second subtype, ADHD, predominantly hyperactive, impulsive type, um, symptoms include talking excessively, difficulty remaining seated, acting as if driven by a motor. The third subtype is combined type where the individual meets both sets of inattention and hyperactive impulsive criteria. Interesting. Now, why is depression, addiction, and learning disabilities a challenge to some people with ADHD? Because uh, those are something that often manifests, um, something called comorbid existing disorders with ADD. They often coexist with ADD. Uh, One study revealed that 50% of adults with ADHD have a history 
of a substance use disorder. Physiologically, this might be related to low levels of serotonin and dopamine in the brain. Addiction is also a coping method for those with ADHD to counteract the years of low self-esteem that often stems from negative educational experiences. And, Cynthia, I also wanted to um, just uh, go back to question one and just talk a little bit, if it's okay with you, about some of the little bit of the brain chemistry. Oh, yes, please please do, please do. Okay. Uh, Physiologically in the brain, um, there are several theories of ADD. Uh, One is that there are low levels of the neurotransmitter dopamine as well as serotonin. Mm -hmm. There is reduced blood flow in the frontal lobes of the brain, um, and that is responsible for planning and emotion. And there's also something um, called a disturbance in the reticular activating system, which is located in the brain stem. The reticular activating system is a finger-shaped network of neurons extending from the spinal cord to the thalamus, and that's located in the brain stem. Mm -hmm. Sensory input travels up the spinal cord to the thalamus, where some of it branches off and it activates the RAS, which filters incoming stimuli and it blocks out irrelevant noises. In people with ADD, it's hypothesized that the reticular activating system fails to properly filter stimuli, and this might offer an explanation why a lot of people with ADD feel bombarded by stimuli. It's, it's equivalent to, for instance, you are a radio station and you are receiving all the signals at once, and a lot of people just feel, you know, they don't like being in cities. They just feel really Yeah, bombarded. it's like they'll feel overload, like on overload? Yes. It, so it's yes. like sensory overload in a way? Yes, and they feel very overwhelmed. Um, yeah, so it's, you know, it's just, you know, kind of like going to Times Square in New York City and just feeling really crazy by all the noise and all the taxis, and it's it's a lot. <laughs> I thought it was just because I lived in the woods too long. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, you'll probably find a lot of people with ADD living in the woods, <laughs> escaping from all the noise. Yes. So, um, now, is there, so you, you talked about um, why it leads to depression and addiction, but also, can Amy, can you define what is what is depression clinical depression what is addiction what 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 does that mean if somebody's diagnosed with a learning disability okay sure um clinical depression can be i mean there are a number of different criteria for meeting depression Uh, there's something called dysthymia which is a period of depression that exists over a period of two years more often than not Um, symptoms of clinical depression include um, loss of interest in things someone previously had a lot of interest in, sleeping a lot. Um, that could also include drug use, alcohol abuse. Um, you know, the addiction can be, as I was saying, drug dependence, alcohol abuse, alcohol dependence. Mm-hmm. Learning disabilities can include anything from an auditory processing impairment where it's not um, referring to someone who has difficulty Filtering in auditory stimuli, for instance, someone that is you know, listening to a passive lecture and just simply cannot absorb the information that they're hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are other learning disabilities um, that could be, it could be attributed to ADD, and again, too, that's physiologically based. It could be dyslexia. It could be any number of learning disabilities. Okay. And in terms, in your book, you talk about hypoglycemia actually being common in people with ADHD. Yeah. Why, why define hypoglycemia and then also define why, why, does, why can that happen? Sure. It's, there's not a lot of research on it, not a lot of research anyway that I came across. But mm-hmm. um, interestingly, according to the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, um, I, just, I found a study that um, cited that low serotonin individuals often develop hypoglycemia. Hypoglycemia, is, I discovered, is common in those with ADHD, and people with ADHD often have low levels of serotonin, hence we can hypothesize there, there is a relationship. I have a friend who has a daughter who was recently diagnosed with ADHD, and she often recounts stories to me of her daughter catching her daughter in the kitchen just shoveling spoonfuls of sugar into her mouth. Mm, wow. So I have not come across a lot of research on that, but there is apparently a relationship. Okay. You, you talk about this in your book where you say that um, people with ADHD kind of jump into the water without, you know, testing it, and that sometimes that this actually can work out. H- how is that so? I think that people with ADHD often take risks that most people will not. Um, this can be a wonderful gift. I believe it's the basis for new inventions, exploration of new countries. Um, 
you know, for instance, it is speculated that Einstein had ADD as well as Ben Franklin. You know, had mm-hmm. we, you know, we have wonderful inventions that a lot of people apparently um, who invented these had ADD. Mm-hmm. And in terms of, um, since you brought it up in school systems, in our traditional school system, it's it, it's very difficult with um, those diagnosed with ADD because they don't fit in the box, so to speak. It's right. in terms of, at least as I, I've been out of school for quite some time, but I think it's still kind of the way that it's taught. It's a lot of, audit, there is the visual, but a lot of it still is sit in your seat, limited movement. Un- right. Unless that's changed, you, you would know better than I. Is it still pretty much that format? Unfortunately, I think it is. I think predominantly in public and traditional education, it is still that format. And I think actually it's become increasingly worse. I've read um, a lot of what I have read lately indicates that recess has been cut um, completely out of a lot of school programs or it's very minimal. Mm -hmm. Um, Lunch has even been cut back. I've I've read that some schools have their lunch period cut back to 20 minutes now. Yeah, and it makes me wonder, how can these kids eat lunch in 20 minutes? If they're in the lunch line to buy a lunch, it's going to be five minutes of their time sometimes just going through the cafeteria line. So it's like you're gobbling your food really quick, and there's very limited uh, time to really even digest your food. Right, there isn't. There's no time to digest your food, and then it's back to the classroom for another three or four hours of academics, you know, and sitting in the seat and sitting, um, you know, in the classroom and listening often to passive lecture. Mm -hmm. You talked about um, in your book a uh, Dr. Amen, Mm -hmm. who is the author of Change Your Brain, Change Your Life. Now, I didn't get to that book to read it, but you you talk about him for a bit. And so talk, speak to listeners about his book and why you subscribe to it and why you, you mention it in your book. What's the significance of his work? Sure. Um, his work was very interesting to me. He focused on the physiological aspect of ADD. Um, he believes that ADD is the result of neurological dysfunction in the prefrontal cortex of the brain, which is the front third of the brain right behind the forehead. Um, the prefrontal cortex is the most evolved part of the brain. It's responsible for time management impulse control, organization, and critical thinking. And these are all obviously problems that people with ADHD have. Those with problems in the prefrontal cortex often have difficulty activating this part of the brain under stress. And decreased functioning of the prefrontal cortex causes one to lose a train of thought during a conversation. Um, Of course, we all have this problem at one time or another, but Mm -hmm. this happens really often to those with ADD. When people with ADD try to concentrate, prefrontal cortex activity decreases rather than increases. And this limited attention span and distractibility prevents one from completing projects. So you might hear someone with ADD complain, you know, oh, I can never finish this project. They might have a slew of 100 projects that are uncompleted. Mm. Um, And so it, it just, it manifests itself in a lot of different ways. People with ADD experience a lot of difficulty sustaining attention for mundane activities because of decreased prefrontal cortex function. And it's interesting to note that Dr. Amen states that people with ADD unconsciously seek conflict as a way to stimulate their prefrontal cortex, hence they become addicted to turmoil. And he uh-huh. suggests one way to react to, these, um, to this is to just react calmly and softly. Instead of getting caught up in the, in the, term, uh, caught up in the drama, in other words. Right, exactly. Um, another thing that I thought was really interesting about his research is that he suggests and it's, um, that the prefrontal cortex also facilitates activities of the limbic system, which controls mood, and it helps to translate emotion, emotion yeah. uh-huh, into expressions of love, passion, or hate. And underactivity or damage to this part of the brain often leads to a decreased ability to express thoughts and feelings, which you'll find um, in a lot of people with ADD. And I think this is also why so many writers, artists, and musicians are not only capable of expressing their emotions through paintings, poetry, or songs. Um, I think, in essence, we can be grateful for the works of art, music, and writing that we have mm-hmm. um, as a result of that. Yeah. So. And what, how does, does he speak in that book about how one changes their brain, how one can do that? He does. I mean, he has a number of different cognitive tec- techniques in there. Uh, there is one specific cognitive technique um, cognitive meaning just changing the thought processes mm-hmm. or learning how to restructure your thought processes. 
Um, one of the techniques that I particularly like and that I hand out uh, to people in workshops is something called the one-page miracle, and it really helps people, I think, especially those with ADD, just to clear their head and just look down and get onto a piece of paper and see it in black and white. Their goals, their short-term goals, their long-term goals, and their goals regarding money, regarding fi- regarding finances, regarding relationships, um, regarding career goals, uh, choices in a spouse, choices in family, uh, choices in friends. Um, so it just, I just think it's very helpful just to list, you know, what your what your future goals are, what your current goals are. So that's the tool. The tool is called the One Page Miracle, and you hand out uh, this page, and then people kind of map out. What, what they're hoping for or where they're at. Right, right. Okay, a little bit of both. And then that helps, you're saying, by, by having it put down, writing it, and having it in front of them, black and white kind of helps them to have a nice visual and also take their time in the, in the mapping of it? Right. Interesting. Yeah, that's something that I hand out to people in workshops, and we sit in a circle, and everyone fills it out, and then we go around the room one at a time, and everybody shares it. And I think, you know, it just really helps people to clarify what their current goals are i think um and perhaps we'll get to it a little bit later on but um you know that's one of the things that people with add really experience is a lot of a lot of scattered energy and a lot of trouble trying to decipher or ascertain the right direction in their life mm-hmm. uh, yeah let's let's talk briefly though about the pharmaceutical drugs that are used to treat add and adhd sure. um why are you what are they and uh, some of them, we can't get through all of them. And, and why are you opposed to them? And I, I know, of course, we'll, we'll get to Ritalin because that's like the number one prescribed drug for, uh, the, or at least the one that I'm most familiar with, with those who have been diagnosed with this disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, the most well-known psychostimulants are Ritalin, Adderall, Concerta. Uh, there are a number of new ones on the market right now. I would say those are the, the major ones. Um, I'm not entirely opposed to them. There are many studies that document their positive benefits. Approximately 70 to 80 percent of children on Ritalin respond really well, along with some type of behavioral therapy. However, conversely, that means that 20 to 30 percent of children do not. So my concerns lie in the propensity to quickly write out a script for these Schedule II narcotics, a category that includes amphetamines, cocaine, morphine, opium, and barbiturates. Um, you know, there are many, there are some negative side effects. Adderall, for instance, has been documented to cause arrhythmias. Mm-hmm. Um, Ritalin also alters the dopamine production of, in the brain. The brain decreases as a result of Ritalin the amount of its own production of dopamine. Mm-hmm. My other concern is the amount of prescriptions that are written. Um, in the year 2000, doctors wrote almost 20 million um, prescriptions for psychostimulants. And... Sales of psychostimulants also in the year 2000 soared to $758 million. Mm-hmm. It's a major market. Uh, my other concerns lie in the long-term effects on the central nervous system or the cardiovascular system. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you say that about the numbers, too, because I think it was, if I have the, I think it's Dr. Blumenthal out of Mass General, I think, mm-hmm. kind of made a public statement not too long ago on uh, on the Jim Lair News Hour, anyway, on PBS about um, it, just in terms of of uh, doctors that are um, th- that how the pharmaceutical industry it's not just about giving doctors pens and pads and and uh, that kind of thing it's it's kind of whining and dining and big expensive evenings out to help promote the particular pharmaceutical that is under the umbrella of their company and that he was kind of, he's come out in the public kind of urging physicians to kind of take their authority and their power back from the pharmaceutical companies and, um, and also in terms of the, our, our schools, our, our medical schools also right. with the funding that comes, um, large amounts of funding from pharmaceutical companies. Right. Right, and also related to that, I don't know if you have read it, but in the New York Times recently, um, the FDA voted to include black box warnings, which is the most serious of um, the agency's drug risk warnings on the outside of these psychostimulants. Nearly 4 million patients take these drugs to treat ADHD. Wow. What, you know, in terms of the long term, I don't, do you, do you, are you aware of like Ritalin in terms of when it's given to some of the, the younger kids? What's the long term effect? 
They don't actually know. There are no studies that have documented um, the long-term effects. They know what the short-term side effects are. Mm -hmm. Um, They do know for a fact that, you know, Adderall has been known to cause arrhythmia. There Mm -hmm. have been sudden deaths. I believe it's approximately 25, which doesn't sound like a large number out of 4 million people. But if you're one of the families that are impacted by that, it's a big deal. Right, exactly, exactly. It doesn't matter what the number is. There are deaths that have been attributed to these drugs. Yeah, one death is too many. Right, um, right. In terms of, you know, it's also sometimes when Ritalin is, uh, wh- why is it that sometimes the antidepressants go hand in hand? It's like, it's, it's, isn't it sometimes more than one drug? Like you might be on Ritalin and then put on Prozac as well? Does that, is that part of the package? or? Yeah, to address the, as I was talking about before, the um, coexisting disorder, depression often occurs. Uh, simultaneously, simultaneously with depression, some of that's physiologically related, mm-hmm. and I believe some of that is environmentally related because of the negative educational experiences that a lot of kids in schools have, and that contributes to a loss of self-esteem over time. Um, so often, um, a lot of people are put on antidepressants in conjunction with psychostimulants. Right. It just seems to go hand in hand. You you talk about in your book, too, you, you don't really feel, um, and correct me if I'm, I'm, you know, kind of putting words in your mouth that aren't appropriate or accurate, that you don't really feel traditional psychotherapy works for ADD, ADD and ADHD. Mm-hmm. Why do you feel that way? I feel that just from my research over the last number of years, um, I just, I really think that we need to explore alternatives to these to drugs as well as traditional psychotherapy. Um, I believe through yoga, proper diet, meditation, daily exercise, adequate sleep, um, things, improvements in organization and planning, I really believe that we can alleviate the need for long-term use of drugs as well as uh, psychotherapy. I have um, created and taught curricula in three alternative schools and I've worked extensively with kids diagnosed with ADHD, the majority of whom have been expelled from public schools. When I took these kids out of the classroom and out of traditional therapy groups, they very positively responded to classes structured with movement, visual, and interactive learning. Yeah, I I think that's very profound. You know, what's interesting to me, too, is I I know um, people who work in adult ed or who work with, um, you know, some of the students who have dropped out, you know, of high school and whatnot because they were just bored in school, you know, also other problems, too, sometimes family problems. But I'm wondering, even beyond, um, you know, ADD and ADHD, that just in terms of having the interactive component, that it could be so important for um, a whole host of students, not necessarily even those, you know, that have been diagnosed with this disorder. Right, Absolutely. Um, you know, and being that, you know, in addition, as you were saying, to ADD, I mean, I think depression is something that's very prevalent and very common, too common in our society today. Um, one of the things that I suggest about incorporating movement into curriculum relates to a study at a Princeton University that documented possibly that movement boosts serotonin in the brain, um, and that would alleviate symptoms of depression. Um, what he is saying is that you have a bad day, exercise, um, mm-hmm. And yet, you know, it's interesting, Amy, that seems so hard when people are really depressed and they know that they're supposed to get up and move because it can be helpful for a whole host of reasons, right. especially what it does for the brain. But it's so difficult just to get up. Right. Sure, it is. I mean, sometimes people just cannot motivate themselves. And so in terms of the classroom component, you you are you're saying a, a lot the common denominator for the a lot of the treatments that you're you're prescribing have to do with this interactive and hands-on piece. Mm-hmm. And so is is that how you is that the tool that you use to motivate your students? Yeah, absolutely. One uh, story I've repeatedly told is from the very first alternative school that I interned in in New Jersey. Um, I was extremely discouraged with traditional group therapy. We had kids cursing at us, screaming, throwing chairs across the room. Oh, jeez. <laughs> that makes you not want to go to work in the morning. <laughs> right. <laughs> and they did not have any interest in revealing their feelings in the context of a group. And very interestingly, a friend offered to help me um, start a community garden in the school, and things drastically changed. These students eagerly worked to build a compost bin, they turned over the soil, mulched the garden. Uh, one girl enthusiastically described a fond memory of planting tomatoes with her mother. 
Uh, she previously never talked in group, nor had she previously talked to me. Uh, and all of a sudden it was through this this activity? Mm-hmm. And so did, did you find a profound change, a shift in all of those kids that were involved in this? I won't say all of these kids. You know, I think that healing, you know, for some people evolves over the course of many years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for some kids you might see, you know, I think gradually, I don't think ever instantaneously they might they might have an instant moment of gratification but i think it's like planting a seed over time over months um you know some of these kids really take that seed that you've planted and they flourish well since you already brought up the organic gardening piece let let's segue into that because you you speak to that you're a real strong advocate for organic farm organic farming and produce you've done it yourself um Speak a little bit more to the organic farming industry and why you are such a strong advocate for that industry. And then also, if you would address, um, if you want to add more to why it's so helpful as a therapy for those with ADD. Okay, sure. Um, I think personally, farming changed my life. I first uh, began working in community gardens, then visiting a friend in New Hampshire and working on farms with him, and then I eventually spent a year organically farming full-time on my own selling produce through a roadside farm stand to health food stores and restaurants. Um, It became very apparent to me after a number of years of being involved in farming that it involved constant physical and manual labor. It's great for channeling hyperactivity. Um, It's visual learning. One can learn about the soil and uh, soil science through soil testing. Mm -hmm. Um, One summer, a coworker and I worked with students to build a farm stand at an alternative school that I was working at. And we integrated the Pythagorean theorem into the the design. Um, You can incorporate so many educational experiences into projects um, related to farming. Um, Other benefits that I have observed, farming builds community and group cohesion, uh, as well as the many psychological and social benefits um, that have come out of the other um, things that I will talk about stimulates learning, it's interdisciplinary in nature, it involves subjects such as plant physiology, botany, seed structure, fruits and vegetables, soil science. Um, Therapeutically, I believe that it channels addictive behaviors, anger and depression. Um, Long hours are required in farming, and I really think that having an addictive personality can be of great benefit. (laughs) (laughs) You get addicted to your farming. You do. Well, it's like some people get addicted to exercise. or Yeah, it's like kind of turning it over to at least make it an addiction that um, is beneficial versus detrimental. Right, right. One of the things I strongly advocate for is learning how to channel your negative addictions into positive outlets. And I have seen a lot of people in the farming industry who have previously struggled with addiction and it's just learning how to translate that addiction into something positive i mean it just it requires long obsessive hours <laughs> yes a lot <laughs> of physical manual labor but also there's the other piece of what to plant like you say soil there's much more to it right um i i think more to it sometimes than than those who don't grow you know or work in a garden actually actually realize Right, absolutely. In terms of the um, farming curriculum, like as you were doing that, speak a little bit more to that. I mean, how did you determine with the kids um, and and in your groups too, like what you would plant, how you would plant, what was the process like? Was it one person made the decision? Is it part of like the group working together to decide so it allows for many, you know, a lot of interaction and many opinions and a sense of consensus? Or what, what was the process? It has varied. That's an interesting question. It has varied from different contexts that I've worked in. One alternative school, um, I often had, I often did not have big classes in alternative school. So the one alternative school I was at, I might have like three to five kids, and that's perfect um, because a lot of them have emotional problems. So a small size is much better. But I would work with several kids at a time. Um, you know, sometimes we would just sit down with a piece of paper and together collectively as a group we would um, usually come to, you know, have a consensus type of decision making, sit down as a group and, you know, plan it out on paper and I would present different types of gardens to them, pizza gardens. Um. Pizza gardens? <laughs> that sounds good to me. Well, what's yeah. a pizza garden? <laughs> you mean you're planting, are you serious, like you're planting oregano and you're... Right. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, what else besides, oh, tomatoes, of course, right? Tomatoes, basil, oregano, 
um, you know, just any mushrooms, any type of vegetables that you would want to include on a pizza. You can, you know, you can plant it in the form of a pizza. That is and a really cool idea. Yeah, yeah. And, and that and that directly, you know, I think, I don't know many kids who don't like pizza. Nope, I don't either. It's a way to really encourage them to eat their vegetables. <laughs> yeah, and so it's kind of getting them where they're at, too. Right. I think that's right. great. We're going to take a brief break, and we will be right back. I'm speaking to Amy Stein, the author of Fragments, Coping with Attention Deficit Disorder. We'll be with you in a moment. We are back with, uh, I, that's a cut from Putin Mayo, if I'm saying it, Putin Mayo, I hope I'm saying it right, the Middle Eastern uh, music, really enjoying that as of late. And I am Cynthia Swan, your host of Healthy Options, and I'm speaking to Amy Stein about integrative approaches to dealing with attention deficit disorder. And Amy, let's let's pick it up where we were um uh, but right before the break here, we were talking about the organic farming industry and how you incorporate that into your curriculum uh, with kids. Um, is that is that your main uh, piece that you like to utilize for the environmental education piece is the gardening? It's a huge component of it. I would say it's the majority of my uh, curriculum that I have developed over the last number of years. However, I'm also very interested in forest ecology and stream ecology, and oftentimes the kids have to <laughs> <laughs> suffer my obsession with that. <laughs> oh, well, I, well, I'd like to hear more, and I'm sure listeners would too. Talk a little bit about forest ecology and stream uh, ecology. Def define that sure. um, and, and how you incorporate that in the curriculum and why that's your uh, another passion of yours. Sure. I think, for one, it's extremely healing. I mean, it's just it's being, you know, immersed in silence, away from noise, first of all. Um, second of all, again, too, um, I'll talk, for instance, about water testing, uh, taking mm -hmm. kids out. Um, with a lot of alternative schools, you have a lot of creative freedom. Um, so I had the capability to take them out into the forest, uh, to visit local streams and creeks. Mm -hmm. And I purchased water testing kits, and I would take kids out, and we would go test local waters for pH levels, dissolved oxygen, um, nitrates, phosphates, etc. And I would break them up into small groups and assign each one of them a task. And the test, the water tests nowadays are very simple to use. Um, they're just a lot of them are simply tablets. And mm -hmm. I would break kids up into groups and have some questions for them to answer. And they would all have a task. You know, one group might be working on, you know, pH, you know, determining the pH levels of a stream, and then. Another group will be working on determining the levels of dissolved oxygen, and they would have to define what is pH and what is their, what would be, you know, what does a healthy stream indicate? What pH level do you have? Is this a healthy stream or not? 
And again, too, this approach is something that's visual learning, it's interactive, it's hands-on. They're not sitting in a classroom reading a science book and learning about pH. They're actually seeing how it fits um, into the real world and what its applications are for the real world. It's great. They get out in the woods. They get to take a walk in the woods, put their right. feet, in the, feet in the stream. Right. You know, rather than sitting in class falling asleep on a book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, it's, I think it's been extremely effective. What are you um, using for the forest ecology, Amy? Forest ecology can be very simple. Um, it can be anything from just going out into the woods and identifying trees. Um, I use tree ID guides. Right. Um, you know, I myself have spent many years hiking and identifying trees on my own as a favorite pastime. And again, like I said, sometimes the kids are like, Amy, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I know. You're, you're, you're reminding me of my husband. It's like, Cindy, what's that tree? It's like, Brian, please stop quizzing me. Let's just enjoy the walk. He knows every tree in the woods. You two would be a perfect uh, hit together with that. Right. So, so you're, but you're teaching them about the indigenous uh, you know, plants in their right. area. Right. One of the things that I really enjoyed teaching that was a major part of my forest ecology curriculum was maple sugaring. Ah, yeah. That that always makes me, that reminds me always of the Nearings books, the the maple sugar times. I love those books. Talk about that. Sure. That turned into be a phenomenal project. I was teaching at an alternative school in Pennsylvania, and I had done some maple sugaring up in New Hampshire with a friend who taught me a lot about it came back and I decided that I wanted to run a maple sugaring program. It mm-hmm. really blossomed. Um, initially, we decided to tap a few trees, and it wound up being about 35 trees, which wow. doesn't sound like a lot, but when you have about, you know, six to eight kids that have various and sundry problems. And yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot of work. It's a huge amount of work, and we did it by hand. So we tapped about 35 trees with buckets, and every morning we would... Uh, go out with some of the kids and collect buckets. And then very fortunately, right behind our school was a guy who owned a 200-acre farm, and he tapped trees, and he boiled sap. So we would take our sap buckets over to his farm where we would boil the sap, and we made maple syrup. And the kids really, really enjoyed it. It escalated into a project far beyond what I had ever imagined it to be. Um, I had the kids in my art class create art labels for the outside oh, of the maple sugar cool. bottles. Yeah. Oh, it was so much fun. They did little miniature paintings, and then we printed them out in stickers. Oh, and wow. Yeah, it was so fun. And then we affixed it to the bottles, and they decided they wanted to sell these bottles in local health food stores and raise money for a yearbook. And they did it, and they formed a committee, and it turned out to be this incredible interdisciplinary project. And it got a lot of kids excited, and a lot of these kids, had never been excited about being in school before. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, there was one kid who gave me a lot of problem about, um, didn't want to cooperate, had no interest in what I was doing. And he turned out to be the one who was volunteering after school and on weekends, volunteering his time to go work on it. Yes, to go work, um, you know, after school to boil sap. He found something he could do well and could be passionate about. Right. And it's always nice to have something that tastes good. Right. Like maple syrup. Uh, that's like, that's like should be a staple, I think, in every home, maple Ab- syrup. Absolutely. And I think, it's just, I think it's great. It would be awesome if people learned where it came from. And, you know. Well, also, it's like you took it from kind of, you know, soup to nuts, if you will, and, and you brought out like the entrepreneur in these kids. Right, right. And that's something that um, I believe there's just a whole host of psychological benefits that come from an experience like that, you know, it boosts their self-esteem, it gives them a sense of accomplishment, um, it improves, you know, communication among them, uh, you know, and also it helps them to identify avocational interests and perhaps vocational interests, you know, maybe some of these kids will go on to become biologists or foresters, or it just gives them a sense about their environment and what else is out there, and I think it also somehow brings them out of their self-centeredness as well. Is, is do you think that that's the big issue that you get stuck in in that realm in your in yourself almost too much in that I do piece? I do I think um, I see so many people just really dwelling on their depression and I think it becomes very regressive in nature and a lot of the things that I've discussed in my book and a lot of these things that are therapeutic you know whatever they are I really think that it's it's progressive in nature it's not regressive in nature. 
Right. You, you talk about that a lot about being progressive and and many of these things are um, totally that that you speak to are all about cultivating the self, but also getting beyond yourself into seeing yourself as a bigger uh, um, a piece of a much bigger part of the whole. Right. Now, do the kids get that? As they do, you, do you feel that the kids get a sense of that by and large, or that it's just something that again they're they're getting a piece of that, and as they evolve, that will become more and more they'll become more aware of something like that that they are doing that. Yeah, I think it's something that perhaps you know over time that's something that they will realize. I don't think it's something that hits them right away because I think you know kids really live in the moment. And I think it's not something that they see, but I think perhaps maybe in a couple of years down the line, you know, I've seen kids come back to different places where I've worked, and, you know, within two years or three years, they might be adopting, um, you know, some of these, you know, things as their own hobbies. Mm-hmm. So I think it's something in slowly that they, um, that occurs to them over time. But I don't, I don't think too many kids really see the big picture, not for a while. Do you th- now when you do are you doing this work as you well as you do this work with adults um are, is it is it easier are kids easier in this realm than adults or it doesn't make a difference or it's very individualistic I think it's very individualistic Yeah okay. <laughs> I worked with adults that are still very regressed and that are still very you know kind of stuck in this adolescent rut Mm-hmm. And um, and then you you know you work with kids who within two years are just blossoming. So I think it is very individualistic. I think it depends on you know it depends on physiological factors. It depends on environmental factors. It depends on financial factors. It, you know I think it's very individualistic in nature. And is it um, also like if you were to say it's like not necessarily like one is a magic bullet. It's not like organic farming alone or forest ecology. Is it? but it's the combination of the offerings that you put to the kids because it 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 remind the way you talked about the maple sugaring project it was so comprehensive but also so complete and um offering so much uh texture in one project but a lot of depth right and so do you do you like think that that is a is a better way than doing a little bit of this or a little bit or again is it individualistic how deep you go with something yeah i think it is i mean although it's hard to when you're teaching in an alternative school sometimes it's difficult to you know gear things on an individualistic level um because you know you're creating curriculum you're trying to address the needs of a lot of people versus one person at a time and everyone has their own pace as to how they digest these things as to how they process these things and mm-hmm. especially where they are in their in their healing you know um, right. the old adage you know you have to if you want to change you if you want to change you need to you know be open to changing right right or gandhi you must become the change you wish to see right be. Ab- absolutely absolutely um, and that doesn't happen until you're ready for it now, you in, in your book, you also talk about um, creating awareness between religion and ecology. Mm. Now, why do you deem that important uh, for those with emotional and psychological disorders? That's, that's an interesting question, and I think it's, it's also a very complex question. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're referring to that, I'm also including uh, cultivating a sense of spirituality, um, I believe everything is interrelated. I believe um, the Native Americans refer to the web of life. What mm-hmm. we do to the web affects everything. Mm-hmm. Everything is interconnected. Nothing is mutually exclusive of each other. I think that we have lost a sense of spirituality. I'm not saying this applies to everyone, but I really believe collectively as a society, we really have kind of disconnected from a sense of spirituality. And when that happens, Spirituality and nature are so intertwined. There's just no separation of the two. Um, I think we really lose the connection to the earth. Um, in his widely published 1967 essay, uh, Lynn White wrote um, about about this very topic. His essay was called "The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis," mm-hmm. and he stated that Christianity insisted that it is God's will that man exploit nature for his proper ends. And unfortunately, this has been translated as domination by man, which belie- which leads to exploitation and destruction of natural resources. Inevitably, I believe this leads to destruction of our emotional and physical health as well as our spirituality. And in the religious uh, environment, 
there are organizations that are working um, to encourage churches to be environmentally conscious. Um, mm-hmm. There was a major organization um, in Washington several years ago that talked about um, really encouraging congregations and a variety of different faiths to come together and to start paying attention to uh, environmental, you know, concerns. Um, it was, I believe it was called the Religion and Science for the Environment Organization. Um, they had congregations, uh, I think over three and a half million congregations were represented, Catholic con- uh, congregations, Southern Baptists, Jewish, uh, evangelical Christians, Native American leaders, and at the end of that conference they concluded that the environment is a gift from God and we must take care of it. So essentially anything that happens um, in the environment directly impacts us, and I really believe that I think it can be very effective if churches can instill that responsibility in people. Yeah, I think as you're speaking to it makes me think about, as you said earlier, about the um you know the the web and the interconnectedness, but it also makes me think about how um, certain you know, like for example, specific animals have sometimes been demonized, right? Right. I mean, we'll we'll see that you know coyotes are you know scavengers and you know and get let's get rid of the coyotes because they're you know they're they're the demons you know and they're they're going after people's um, you know small animals and. And and whatnot, so that if we got rid of the coyotes, the problem would be solved. And mm. and um, and I, I just makes me think about how sometimes there's this feeling to, and and then how we even demonize even on in personal issues. Sometimes you there's there's this uh, somebody does something you don't like, so all of a sudden you make them out to be the bad guy. I mean, maybe what they're doing is bad, but you know you know what I'm saying. What I'm trying to say in terms of that, I, I think the culture itself has a way of anything you don't like to try to demonize it right. instead of realizing that everybody's a piece of everything, the good, the bad, the ugly, and let's work with what we've got and right. learn to honor all those pieces. Right, right. I was having a recent conversation with a friend of mine about that, and, you know, it's we are but a leaf on a tree, you know, but each of those leaves are very significant. It's all part of the whole tree. Every leaf counts. Right, I I hear you. You you state in the in your book as well. You say you said I'll quote you. You said society today depends on external passive sources for entertainment, mm-hmm. and that you feel this is harmful to our society. Just give a few ex- give an example. I mean, I can I can think too of of, of many which that statement is true for me. Um, but but why you think this is also harmful to us as a society? I think as a society, uh, if you just look around, we're bombarded with entertainment. Uh, the children of this generation do not rely on their imaginations to entertain themselves. I uh, have very vivid childhood memories of playing outside, building forts, chasing frogs. Children these days are glued to TV, computers, cell phones, video games, and it's one of my biggest fears that they will lose one of their greatest gifts, which is their imaginations and also their creativity. Yeah, it brings me to that wonderful old film that I've always loved to watch year after year with uh, the very young Margaret O'Brien, where uh, she doesn't believe in Santa Claus. Oh, Miracle on 34th Street. Right. And and, uh, Chris Kringle says, um, she says, I can't be a chimpanzee. I can't be that. And he says, we have to use your, you know, you've heard of the United Nations or whatever, Mm -hmm. and now use your imagination. Uh. And I I couldn't agree with you more. I think uh, our imagination is a a wonderful, wonderful uh, gift and that it needs to be exercised. In your in your book, you also did talk about your interest in Buddhism while you were in graduate school, and how um, you, you talk a little about Zen-based philosophy and art and meditation and music, and how all of those can be used as antidotes for depression. Can you elaborate a little more on that? Sure. Um, I just, I very much I explored a lot of Buddhism in graduate school. One of the alternative schools that I worked for in Pennsylvania was a Buddhist high school, and I think Buddhism is fascinating. There are four noble truths in Buddhism. One of those, uh, the first one is realizing there is another way. Mm -hmm. The second one is letting go of attachment. The third one is realizing we are all suffering. And the fourth one is an eightfold path, which consists of principles of ethical conduct, wisdom, and mental discipline. 
And I believe these are essential truths for all of us to realize. And I think that once we understand and fully live these truths, I really believe that enlightenment during this lifetime can occur and can change one's life. One of the uh, key concepts of Buddhism is mindfulness, and it means to be present in the moment and awareness of one's surroundings, and in essence, enjoying all of life. Once you can achieve um, the, you know, a state of mindfulness, I really believe that it can enhance your life. So I really feel that Buddhism can be very therapeutic. And is it more difficult for someone who has uh, ADD to engage in that? Or, again, it's individualistic, and for some it's like a, it can certainly be a, a lifesaver. Yeah, I think so. I think, again, too, it's, it is. Um, and that's an interesting question because at the school that I was working at, you know, meditation was a part of our daily routine. And for kids coming in with ADD to have to learn how to meditate 20 minutes every morning can be quite feels, a feat. Yeah, it feels like, you know, climbing Mount Everest probably. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, they want to come in and they want to run around. And, you know, it's very, very difficult. And I think for anybody in today's day and age to to try and meditate is, is very difficult. But I think it can be particularly difficult with ADD. And, you know, mind, meditation is a, you know, is a major component of Buddhism. So I think probably for people with ADD, I think it can be a challenge. But certainly um, not impossible not impossible at all. I think it's something that's, if you can learn to apply these concepts, I think it can, they can be extremely effective. I loved what you said in your book about, um, and I'll quote you again, you said, our creativity far surpasses our comprehension. Discuss more about that statement that you made. Sure. I think that one can never fully understand or describe the need to create. This is something that I have thought about for many years. I've had many conversations with people about this, others who are engaged in creative pursuits, and no one I have ever spoken to has ever been able to explain why they create other than it's something that, quote, they just do. I mean, to me, creativity is not a choice. I do not choose to write or paint. It's something that just flows through me. And when I'm denied the opportunity to create, I become increasingly agitated. And creativity, it's a release, it's an outlet, it's a gushing of emotion. I once read about someone who interviewed a weaver. The interview persisted in asking the weaver why she wove. And the only answer she could come up with was, I don't know, I just do. So Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is. I think whether it's due to a combination of physiology, genetics, and environment, it's something that remains a mystery. But I, so that's, you know, therefore, I don't think we could ever explain um, or comprehend creativity. Mm-hmm. I, I love, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Julia Cameron's An Artist's Way. Oh, okay. It's fantastic. Is, yeah, I, I figured you you must have read that. That, <laughs> that truly unleashes one's, I, I love what she says where she talks about um, if you don't create and you're a creator, you know, and you're an artist, that, that there's this artistic need. And if you don't do it for the sake of doing it because it's who you are and you have to do it, you're going to get very grouchy, very grumpy, very yeah. unhappy, very depressed. And she goes yes. through this whole, whole <laughs> checklist of all these things. And I thought, yeah, I, that's so true. And it's, so as you were bringing up the story of the Weaver, it's like, yeah, you, you just have to. Right, right. And I see so much of that, you know, happening to our kids, you know, who are thrust into traditional education, I really see a lot of their creativity is squelched. It's not nurtured. And I think as a result, we have a lot of angry kids. Yeah, it, it certainly makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, why, why is, um, we only have a few minutes left. So I, okay. I have a couple things that I really wanted to ask you personally, too. Why did you write your book? I mean, I know it was the outcome of your, your thesis. But still, beyond that, to, what, what was it that prompted you to to write the book? Many years of frustrating experiences with uh, the traditional educational system, uh, as well as being diagnosed with it at the age of 25. Mm -hmm. Um, I think suffering from a lot of negative experiences, as well as reaping the joys of ADD, led me to write this book. And again, uh, as I was talking about, I never felt it was a choice. The words and the ideas flowed once um, I felt compelled to share the experiences. And I also felt compelled to share my experiences about developing and teaching curricula for students in alternative schools. Um, it's also my intention to encourage the inclusion of experiential education into curriculum nationwide to address the needs of ADD students. And I also want to encourage readers to explore holistic treatments to ADD 
and know that there are alternatives to medication and traditional psychotherapy when it fails to meet the needs of many that are diagnosed with ADD. Thank you. You know, I felt in your book too, Amy, that you really bared your soul that you about your own experience, mm-hmm. and um, and that you were very honest and um, and very articulate. And um, was that difficult for you to 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 do that that very. piece? because i thought boy i'd be scared this woman has tremendous courage boy don't i love that well i think initially you just don't really believe that this will evolve into a published book (laughs) (laughs) and then when it's out there and people are reading it and you have to talk about it (laughs) yeah right right (laughs) it's a different story it's just something but i felt I'm, I consider myself to be a very private person, and it was extremely difficult, but for me it was very cathartic. It was very therapeutic to write about that, and I really felt that the book was not complete without adding in some personal experience and some, you know, just talk about the, you know, the pain of, you know, living with ADD. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I felt it was necessary to include. Um, obviously, it didn't include everything. <laughs> right, but, but still quite a lot. And I thought, it was quite, I thought it was quite heroic. I, I want to, we literally have a couple minutes, but I want to uh, read um, something from your book directly, too. You, you, you write this. You say, troubles will always afflict us, but faith is a life preserver, especially for those blessed with creativity. We meet people in life at particular times who offer guidance and hope. These relationships may serve a purpose for a few days, years, or a lifetime. And you talk more about faith. And, but uh, the people that came into your life and who, um, and who, who have worked with you, um, is there anybody in particular or any particular instance that, that comes to you as being so powerful for your own healing? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I really, really owe a lot to people that helped me out and guided me along the way. Um, I had a particular professor in undergraduate uh, school who really helped to mentor me. I worked with her for three years. She taught me how to write. I worked with uh, someone else as a volunteer youth leader who was the uh, youth director at the church I grew up in, and he really took me under his wing. And when I was just experiencing a lot of turmoil in my life. He really never gave up on me as much many times in my life that I wanted to give up. He never gave up on me and always encouraged me to keep going. So I feel there are a lot of people that have really just contributed to, to molding me and to the person that I am today. I would not be without them. And, of course, um, because the person you are, you said yes. And so yeah. you, you received that. Yeah. And you were, you were able, and, and that I thought was, was pretty terrific. Um, Amy, is there anything else that you'd want listeners to know uh, in the few seconds we have left? And also um, how they can get a hold of your book and, um, and parting comments. Okay, sure. The one parting comment that I have is that I believe ADD is a gift. Please remember that. It can be a blessing. It can also... You might consider it to be a curse, but it it truly is a blessing. And the world reaps the benefits from those who have made new discoveries, inventions, artworks, songs. The world would not be without ADD people. (laughs) So please remember that it really can be a blessing. You can, anyone who is interested in purchasing the book, you can access the website of the publisher, Hayworth Press, www.hayworthpress.com. Uh, the book is also available for sale through barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com, borders.com, and any major bookstore. And it can also be ordered through other bookstores around the country as well. And you can purchase it, order it from your local bookstore and help our local businesses here. And the name of the book is Fragments, Coping with Attention Deficit Disorder by Amy E. Stein, S-T-E-I-N-M-S-W. Amy, I thank you so much for being a guest on the show, for all the wisdom that you shared, and for your wonderful book that um, just, just speaks volumes. Thank you so much for that. Well, I thank you so very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on the show, and I very much enjoyed talking to you. Well, thank you. And that sums up today's Healthy Options program. I'm Cynthia Swan, and I hope you will continue to join us on WERU the first Wednesday of every month at 10 a.m. Other co-hosts include Andre Bella and Rhonda Feynman, and we love... um, 
We love hearing from you, listeners, and feedback about the shows. And thank you again to our guests. And I continue to hope and wish for everyone that you will always exercise your healthy options. There are many roads to health. And thank you for listening to WERU, 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor, your community radio station.